Everybody knows now that the streets of Portland, Oregon erupted in protest for racial justice. What's the real story? Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Portland, Oregon in 2020. What images does that bring up for you? Well, guess what? The image we get from the mainstream media is hardly the real full story. Trump has used photographs allegedly of Portland burning, but who knows where they're really from. His campaign is relying on building violence, creating and manipulating fear. But what is the reality in that northwestern city? And what does it say about the two distinct political narratives across the country leading up to November 3rd? With us today from that city at the leading edge of American politics, Portland, Oregon, is David Rovix. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, David Rovix is a songwriter. It was fun to learn about you. A songwriter, musician, blogger, and podcaster based in Portland, Oregon. Since the 90s, David has been touring regularly throughout North America, Europe, and occasionally elsewhere, playing on stages large and small at protests and festivals, as well as in squatted social centers and folk clubs. He's recorded dozens of albums and had millions of his songs viewed, streamed, and downloaded. He hosts two regular podcasts, Song for Today and This Week with David Rovix. And he writes regularly for Dissident Voice, Counterpunch, and Fifth Estate. And he's a wobbly, a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, which I have always admired. One big union. Anyway, nice uh, bio there. The networks (laughs) and the news media need action, fires, and violence. So it grabs headlines and precious seconds of broadcast time. According to your piece in Counterpunch, titled Escalation in Portland, protests have been taking place every night for over three months. I assume the flashpoint was the same one as happened in so many other cities across America, the police murder of George Floyd. But Portland's Mm. protests have been unique. You write that prior to Trump, prior to the pandemic, Portland was a city experiencing multiple crises. We don't know that. Tell us about that, please, and how that all set the stage. Well, I mean, I guess I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that the the, the crises Portland was facing are unique. Although the the, the whole overall uh, Portland is, you know, has, there there are aspects of Portland and Oregon that that are unique. But but generally, the crisis that was going on in Portland was the same crisis that was happening in Seattle, San Francisco, New York City, Boston, uh, which is the housing being completely unaffordable for the average uh, you know, family or person. And so what we've seen has been just a massive uh, dislocation and disruption of, of life uh, in the city. And that's been true of so many other uh, of those rapidly gentrifying cities where I mean, neighborhoods just completely are unrecognizable within years, you know. So Portland has lost more than half of its black population between the last two censuses. Wow. And, that's, and I, you know, I, I remember in Boston in the 60s, there was something called urban renewal, which was supposedly making the city better. Of course, it did exactly that. It destroyed whole neighborhoods. And it's, yeah. and once it's gone, it's gone. And uh, it makes mm. makes it less uh, of a vibrant place to have, uh, you know, less uh, diversity within a town. How did you come up with the title yeah. "Escalation" in Portland? Who's escalating? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean it's this, uh, basically the, what's the dynamic that's been happening. Uh, 
Well, I mean, there's there's different aspects of. I mean, the specific ex escalation that I was uh, talking about um, is is the uh, the death of of uh, the you know the shooting death of a um, far right um, uh, member of a group called Patriot Pr Prayer that was killed on August uh, 29th in downtown Portland when uh, the Trump crews. Uh, came to uh, Portland, which was uh, 600 pickup trucks uh, with over a thousand people altogether, uh, many of them uh, armed with automatic weapons and bear mace and all sorts of other things with big American flags in, uh, on the back of their pickup trucks. And they did a, a cruise from the suburbs of Portland into the city of Portland. Mm. And um, they were uh, met by folks who, uh, you know, were opposed to their being, uh, <laughs> you know, there. Mm -hmm. And ultimately there were, there were, um, uh, they, they were attacking people in the streets and, as they do regularly when they come to town. And this is also not necessarily unique to Portland, but it's true in a lot of cities in the US and in other countries that when the far right comes to town, uh, the police often, um, if there's only a few of them, then the police will tend to protect them mm -hmm. from everybody else. But if there's a lot of them, then the police will tend to uh, vacate the area and, uh, and just let them do their thing. Uh, on the premise, I think, in the minds of the police, that these are basically cops. Uh, they're just like amateur cops. You yeah. know, they're sort of deputized, and they're treated like that by the police. So then uh, they uh, that's a recipe for disaster, of course. Yeah. So, you know, and then eventually, you know, there's going to be people killed. And in what we saw in Kenosha was uh, to a very similar kind of dynamic and uh, where yeah. to... Uh, people were killed, and um, by a far right guy who was came came to be so supposedly protecting property. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what happened in Portland was uh, a far right guy was killed, and so then the uh, then it, the the police had a warrant out for the guy that they uh, thought uh, that who. To, uh, to to the killing as a, in an act of self-defense and um, and and then police from several different agencies municipal and federal and state I believe all descended on uh, the apartment that I got this guy Michael Reynold was staying in near Lacey Washington outside of Olympia and they uh, as by if according to to now new witness uh, statements, which are is which is new since that article I wrote. Um, new witness statements indicate quite clearly that he was just executed in a hail of bullets by the police who came to kill him, not to arrest him. They fired forty bullets. They all went his direction. He was not resisting. They claim he was trying to get away. That's very unclear whether that was true at all. But he certainly was not resisting. They just came and executed him. So that, that's the particular escalation I was referring to, although there's also lots of other escalation in terms of just like every time people take to the streets in, a, in what is essentially a basically very basic uh, civil disobedience 
uh, tactic of marching in the streets, mm-hmm. uh, they're met they're met with overwhelming violence coming from the police in the form of tear gas and you know rubber coated steel bullets and all sorts of stuff. And that's what the people people who aren't at the protests may not realize that all over this country, the overwhelming majority of the time, when the police are attacking people, mm. they are attacking people for taking to the streets, not for destroying any property, but just for marching in the streets. And generally, any property destruction that happens tends to happen after people have been violently assaulted multiple times by the police. And then uh, what they call property destruction oftentimes is uh, people just trying to get to, to put debris in the road so that there's barricades. Uh, and then uh, barricades are most effective when they're burning. And, and this is not anything that was just invented in Portland. Like right. anybody who's been around, if you've traveled much, if you've been to other protests, other other uprisings, other riots in other countries, it's a very commonly understood principle that uh, if you want to stop the police from from just rampaging around and attacking everybody wanton violent, you know, this kind of, you, you need to be able to have physical barriers between you and them. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what people are doing. It's, it's nothing like uh, just, uh, you know, random destruction. You know, it's very, it's very, uh, you know, targeted principled, uh, you know, use of, of, of objects uh, to create, uh, mm-hmm. You know, to, to you know, and then of course it, it involves things getting destroyed that you know maybe somebody didn't want to have destroyed. But you know, when you look at downtown Portland, it's it's overwhelmingly corporate businesses property that are getting uh, damaged uh, on a regular basis, and it's it's the the rioters, whatever you want to call people who, mm-hmm. who do that kind of thing, are, tend to be a very principled bun around here. Uh, although there's always uh, you, you can't never account for everybody who's in a crowd and provocateurs yeah. and such. Oh gosh, of course there's provocateurs. They, uh, I I am old enough to remember May Day, 1971, when we had a protest against the war in Vietnam, and we were trying to block traffic. You know, symbolically close down right. the center of the war-making machine. And with the, the provocateurs were so obvious. It was amazing. <laughs> you know, right. Saying, hey, let's throw rocks at the police. And they also right. had, uh, the, the, <laughs> their bell bottoms were too short and they were neatly pressed. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Uh, it's so funny. They've gotten a bit better, at, yeah, at, uh, I, I think. I, at, <laughs> you know, but, but I've heard so many stories like that from the 60s, especially, and, and like that the cops, uh, the undercover cops, often you just look at the shoes of, uh, and, right. and see, see what their shoes look like. They never would wear like raggedy old sneakers. They'd be wearing like shoes that are sort of, you know, shined and stuff, even if yeah. the rest of the outfit was trying to look like a hippie or something yeah and they're 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 usually a lot bigger like at least i mean at least around here at least in terms of like the sort of the black block crowd that's uh uh-huh. that's doing a lot of the of the you know barricades and stuff and we tends to be scrawny teenagers you know so and, and the cops are never teenagers they're always older than that so that kind of gives them away you know to some extent you know even if they otherwise get the dress code you know they're usually like about 50 percent large than the average black block <laughs> member, at least you know, and they're older, so you know. Well, who is who is black block? I block or black buck? I haven't heard that in a while. There's oh, black block, block, yeah. Yeah, black. Well, black block. I mean, I guess uh, so. I guess there's so many of these terms, right? And I guess it depends on your kind of uh, 
you know, when you first, I don't know who's using what terms these days, but black block is still a commonly uh, used uh, term around uh, sort of some anarchist circles uh, here and in other parts of the U.S. And it was more commonly used in the 90s and around the global justice movement. And it, it is uh, basically... Um, uh, it, virtually inexchangeable uh, with um, it, it, with Antifa uh -huh. and, and for all the practical purposes, but but Antifa, uh, but but it's but you know, but you could you could perhaps make distinct dis distinctions, but it's basically that uh, you could say that milieu um, and and people who believe in in those sorts of militant uh, tactics, but yeah. at the global justice. The, the, when the, the protests against the IMF and the World Bank and the WTO and stuff like that that used to be a mm -hmm. thing going on like 20 years ago, uh -huh. um, they generally involve, uh, you know, as with many other protests, you know, they generally involve a, a mix of people in, uh, involved with different sorts of tactics, and and the black black are the the ones that are generally annoying the the organizers who wanted everything to be, uh, you know, peaceful and and uh, <laughs> harmonious because they're the ones who are you know putting the dumpsters into the street and lighting them on fire and that sort of thing. So that's that's the black block, uh, uh -huh. and they. And they exist in, you know, all th that that sort of element uh, is sure. in some countries, depending on the situation, they don't dress in black, they're not necessarily young, and it's sometimes they're the majority. Sometimes those kinds of t tactics are so commonplace that you wouldn't call it black block tactics because it's just how people protest uh -huh. in Oaxaca, for example, you know. But uh, if you're talking about the North American or European context, then uh, it tends to be they're younger, they tend to be wearing black and they tend to be destroying property, you know, as a matter of principle. Well, there's, you know, it, it, it's a fight and, and there've been the use of barriers has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's just part of yeah. what happens. And there's so much more to talk about. Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is David Rovix uh, from Portland, Oregon. We're trying to see, Really, from the rest of the country, look at what's really going on in Portland, aside from the, the images. And, you know, there is resistance. There is uh, action on the streets. And I, I wonder, and I do want to talk about these so-called liberated zones eventually, but some, most people, I think, remember that, that Trump poured in a whole bunch of secret federal police grabbing people off the street, throwing them into unmarked vans, things like that, that uh, we wouldn't normally think of as this country. We'd think of, uh, you know, Soviet Russia or North Korea or something like that. But I, I'm thinking that the reason they sent in these secret federal police was so they could get video of violence for TV ads. And in fact, that is exactly what they did. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, I got this email from the Trump-Pence campaign. It sure is interesting being on their uh, email list, I'll tell you. They, this is from what they sent. The radical far left, all caps, of course, Joe Biden and Kamala have, all caps, refused to denounce the radical violent groups of protesters destroying, again, all caps, destroying our American cities all over the nation by instead referring to them as peaceful protesters. And... You know, violence, of course, does play on people's fears. And Trump, 
depends on fear, on the manipulation of fear, creating violence, ratcheting up fear. Yet in the past, as you point out, that in Northern Ireland, protests started out as peaceful. But then, as you write, it was met with tremendous violence. Your thoughts on that? And and, and talk about that whole, you know, the media loves the violence and and, uh, Trump made ads showing violence and who knows where the heck it's from. You, you've talked a little bit about the history of that, but what about the example of Northern Ireland that you wrote about? Well, yeah, that's, I mean, the, the question right now, I think in terms of violence, um, I mean, for, for in reality, like on the ground, um, not in Trump's fantasies or in um, our mayor's fantasies, who we, we call him tear gas Ted, the mayor here. <laughs> But uh, in in the in in the fan, whether whether we're talking about uh, you know supposedly uh, liberal democratic fantasies or uh, Trump's you know fascistic fantasies, um, what's really happening on the ground is um, is is the the police forces of these democrat run cities and of course the vast majority of cities are run by democrats and the reason is because when you have popular representation when there's more democracy uh, more democrats win you know which is i'm not saying anything heaping praise on the democratic party by any, by any means but they are a more popular party than the republican party uh, among the population so of course most cities are run by democrats just to uh, you know point that out but uh, these these cities run by democrats who are these Democrats who run these cities? You know, I mean, P- Mayor Ted Wheeler yes. is very representative of that class of people. He's a wealthy, sixth generation timber baron uh, money, you know, and, and that's very normal. And I mean, and it is the landlord gentry el- elite um, who are actually the majority of the legislature in the state. Are They're, they're millionaires and they are big property owners. These cities are all just based real estate investments for the people that run them and for the investors uh, that are making trillions of dollars off of the gentrification of this country, which is one of the biggest, most profitable industries in the world. Mm. That's the context, right? And this property that they're so concerned about being destroyed, this, right. you know, the, the, these, that's who owns it. And the, the police here have been uh, under democratic rule for over a century. And, you know, they've been attacking people constantly. It's their normal way of operating is, is to violently assault people. And and this is nothing new. This goes way, way, way oh, yeah. back. So then you have the federal forces coming in and doing the same. And that, that inspired a lot more opposition because basically there's a lot of people who uh, who don't understand what's happening because they weren't out on the street. And they, they don't realize that the Democratic Party runs these police forces that are attacking people all the time, just like the Republicans do. You know, but it's when the federal troops come in and start snatching people from the streets, it starts getting lots of national media attention. The question before the federal troops came was already irrelevant. The question of at what point is it so unsafe to have uh, a demonstration uh, that involves marching in the streets or maybe even not marching in the streets, you know, that you you can be attacked uh, by the far right or by police or by both and killed and and attacked with people driving vehicles into parks. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, this is happening all over the country. So at what point does is is the atmosphere so fomented by Trump and his Mm -hmm. his uh, fascists, you know, Mm -hmm. that it it gets to the point where people are attacking you so regularly, then getting praised after they kill people like in Kenosha, you know, at what point is it's is it just too unsafe to even 
think that it's possible to have demonstrations in any kind of traditional sense. You know, you know, of course, people are wearing body armor now when they go out to demonstrate. Of course, they are carrying guns with them now. That's what it's come to. And, you know, that's exactly what Trump wants it to look like. And it makes it very difficult for uh, the you know traditional DNC type Democrats. It's, it makes it a difficult position for them to be in because, you know, obviously they want to gather the votes from moderate to conservative uh, uh, Democrats. And I, you know, there again, there's a lot of fear. And I have to mention, you talk about history a little bit. I, I always, not always, but often bring up my old political science professor who defined politics as the economy of violence. The police can be mm-hmm. violent. And, you know, it's, it really, you, ha, you know, the violent forces are there. What, what about that invasion by the secret federal forces? What was that like? What was the effect of that? And, did the people in the suburbs, do they feel frightened by this invasion, do you think? You know, the, the white people, the middle to upper class people, did they feel frightened by this, in, you know, rather fascistic uh, invasion? No, I think uh, the, overwhelmingly the feeling among people in the suburbs uh, was outrage. And um, they, they, of course, it was also that um, it was getting lost media attention there's a bit of a chicken egg phenomenon there i mean what what it seems like what i've observed around portland uh having in the time that i've lived here is when the mainstream media is covering something and everybody knows it's really happening uh, then there are always at any given time many thousands of people from the suburbs who uh, want to come and show uh, their support for, sure. uh, you know, whatever's going on for some kind of change. You know, people, there's a lot of radicals who believe that things need to be, uh, to change in radical ways. They're ready to come uh, commit acts of civil disobedience. They're ready to get tear gas. They're ready to take the streets, but they need to know uh, what's happening. There needs to be some level of organization, whether that's uh-huh. happening through organizers or because the media is telling everybody about it. So like when it was clear, like say back in Occupy Wall Street, that the, mm-hmm. the police were going to raid the Occupy camp and they set a date and time for it. Uh, you know, it was convenient that they set a date and time and that was mentioned on on uh, local and Oregon public radio and probably mentioned on other media. And lo and behold, uh, that was all it took to get 5000 people out there at midnight ah. to um, to defend the Occupy encampment. You know, so, I mean, the support is out there and that's been very clear since the there was loads of media attention when the federal uh, when it was clear that there were federal troops, uh, uh, you know, snatching people off the street, you know, because th- they were there for a couple of weeks <laughs> doing this stuff without it being confirmed by the mainstream media. And once the once Oregon Public Broadcasting confirmed that this was happening and then the rest of the mainstream media was able to, you know, then admit that this was really happening, then uh, then it became, you know, big, huge news. And then I think a lot of people who you know, they, they well, they they came out to oppose that because they knew it was going on. I don't think I don't know if um, you know if they necessarily uh, think that everything was just fine before uh, you know, or, or if they don't have their own you know critique of the the Portland Police Department or or the the the, the mayor or something. But certainly uh, the federal involvement uh, 
it, you know, the size of mm. the protests multiplied by 10 times or more. Uh, I love it. I'm reminded once again, an old guy telling stories from the olden days, uh, the, the best organizer of the anti-war movement back then was Nixon. He brought us together. Yeah. He did. He yeah, absolutely. And it seems to be, you know, from what you're saying here, the invasion by the federal forces united a lot of people. And obviously, yeah. I wasn't there. I can't help but think that many people, including whites from middle and upper economic classes, were present in the anti-racism protests. And I wonder, yeah. did, did it help to create a sense of unity of everybody from different economic classes sharing the same fight? Certainly, at least from what, you know, you can hear so many voices from so many black people across the country who are frequently talking about how one of the reasons why the movement that exists now has gotten as much attention as it's gotten mm -hmm. uh, has been because of the constant, uh, you know, daily ongoing participation of mm -hmm. white people in the movement as well because of course black lives matter uh, marches in 2014 2015 uh you know they they were going on on a very uh, regular mm -hmm. basis uh, but they were overwhelmingly black uh, right. the participants and, and you know throughout the country although that wasn't always the case at all the demos but uh but that has changed as many people have observed He's bringing us together, no doubt about that. There's so much news every day moving so quickly. Many listeners probably have just a vague memory of a liberated or autonomous zone in Portland. I'm very interested in hearing about what that was all about, how it happened, what groups were behind it, what it was like, and its its status today. And there was something, I, I guess it started out with something with the police building. Tell us about that autonomous zone. So you're thinking of the chop in, in Seattle, actually. And oh, there sorry. were um, no, that's all right. But there there were efforts to there were there have been ongoing efforts basically uh, for the past 105 nights or so to um, to recreate uh, something along the lines of the chop in uh, Seattle, uh, which is now gone. Of course, uh -huh. they, the police reoccupied uh, the building in Seattle, but. Uh, but really, um, that, I think that's one of the biggest things that's that's sort of, um, you know, it's not like, uh, I don't know if it's a misunderstanding or if there's just not a lot of communication about intentions or, you know, or if people believe that the, uh, the, 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 the physical efforts that are being made should be, rep should, should communicate without uh, words, you know, the, the uh, sort of uh, communication of the deed, or, but I, but basically whether or not it's being, clearly uh in a sort of presented mm -hmm. way i would i would say that in order to understand what's going on in portland and what has at times been going on in seattle and, and many other cities mm -hmm. in the country uh, is uh, when we when we see um the, the police stations being um burned or destroyed <clears throat> or occupied mm -hmm. In, in many cases, uh, the people who are talking about defunding the police or, to or who are destroying a police station because it was the police station where uh, a particular uh, killer cop uh, who just killed somebody was based out of. There's people who, who see the point in many ways uh, symbolically and tactically of just destroying police stations and that... Uh, 
the, the act of destroying police stations has a very long history around the world as, yeah. a, you know, as an act of resistance. You know, the other thing about it, uh, about the, the, the efforts that are going on, the goal for many people is not necessarily to destroy the police stations, but to do like what you are talking about in Seattle and and, and occupy it. And the, what happened in Seattle was the police got orders to just abandon the station mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. basically use the station as a backdrop for pitched battles every night involving massive amounts of tear gas. And there were, you know, p- political thinkers among the uh, Seattle uh, establishment who thought, oh, okay, we can maybe do something better here. We don't necessarily need right. to hold on to the building if it's going to be such a big controversial thing. We can just, uh, you know, retreat to other police stations and let them take this building and do what they want with it. And this this kind of d- decision making actually has lots and lots of precedent. And this kind of decision making, mm-hmm. you know, it, as recently as just a few years ago in Denmark, uh, this is exactly what the Danish uh the Danish political elite did in order to quell ongoing protests among Danish youth. They gave them a building, you know, and this actually that has a lot of history in Germany and Switzerland and a lot of different countries having to do with the autonomous movement and squatting buildings Mm -hmm. and stuff. And we don't have that kind of history outside of New York city so much in recent history in terms of squatting. Um, But uh, the, the idea is reclaiming space, taking space that is, public or that is you know used for nefarious purposes like mm-hmm. a police station and then doing useful things with it turning it into a community center you know gardens you know housing for the homeless you know all kinds of stuff you can do with it that's useful other than you know having a gang of thugs there to occupy your city you know mm-hmm. which we don't need <laughs> no they often do a lot of damage and i can't help but think that a lot of times the police themselves you know, they're people too, and they recognize that they're called into uh, situations that somebody else could handle better, that they don't need to be, you know, using violence yeah. to do this, that, you know, there's, I mean, I think defunding was an unfortunate word, but just changing the funding, redirecting the funding, stuff like that. I, I can't help but think that in, in Portland, where people have seen what goes on, and the more in the big cities where people see, uh, you know, excessive police violence, uh, they're starting to recognize, you know, they take a lot of the budget. Any idea, uh, you know, the schools, the public education is always the largest uh, uh, line item in a budget. Do you have any sense of how large the budget for police is in, in uh, your city of Portland? You know, I don't remember the percentage. I know sure. that throughout the country, it is usually uh, it's a, the biggest piece of the budget as much as 40 50 percent of typical budgets is is the police yeah and i I don't think it's any different here in portland and i think uh you know the the idea of the idea of having not not having the need for a police force you know it is it is really um there's so many things that in order to really uh, think about them and imagine them effectively you either you know you don't need to rely on on fiction but you do need to look outside of the boundaries of this country 
And, uh, you know, so I run into this a lot, you know, including among you know, intelligent uh, radicals, uh, you know, well-meaning people who are maybe pragmatic and not quite so utopian and aren't ready mm-hmm. to just embrace the concept that they, you know, that just sounds like a good idea without having really thought it through. You know, but uh, defunding the police, I think, is, is, is a wonderful idea. And it's easy to say that as somebody who has thought it through. And I can say that just based on the fact that I have spent much of my adult life traveling and playing music in other countries. And those other countries primarily are countries in Europe. And in Europe, uh, they don't spend uh, so much of their budgets on the police. Uh, They also don't spend much at all on the military. And instead, you know, what they do with their budgets is they have social services and they have lots of people working for the state who do things like build housing, look after children and drug addicts and the elderly. And they, you know, they have massive numbers of social workers in the typical European country. So many that they have so many different names for different social workers. We don't even have these names. We don't even know what they are, even when you translate it into English. You know, it's, it's like whole professions that exist in social democracies that just don't even exist here. And, you know, public health, public mental health, all this kind of stuff, you know, and you have societies, many societies where forced eviction is illegal. Mm-hmm. You know, in the United States, one out of 10 renters is forcibly evicted every year or at least threatened with forced eviction. They are evicted, and, 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 which can be a for- and, and that's totally disruptive and horrible all over the country. And there are other ways that landlords can uh, potentially collect their rent, but not from indigent renters who can't afford to pay their rent. And in in other countries, when you have that kind of situation, there's the government steps in and takes action and funds things. And, you know, there's other ways you can get money uh, from somebody, whether they're employed or not, uh, in a functional state. Uh, You know, they're in a functional uh, state, right. Yeah. And landlords have a lot fewer rights in functional states. You know, they don't have the right to just make all the money they want and, and just, you know, kick people out and have them be homeless. And all. But, you know, this this country is this whole country is a failed state. And But when you don't have when you don't live in a failed state, then you don't need to rely on police, armed police to solve all your problems. Ah. You don't need to police to evict people. You don't need police to solve mental health crises either or any number of other things that they're constantly called for, you know. Yeah, interesting point. And I think more people, you know, there are occasional turning points in history, very, very rare. I, I'm starting to think and have some degree of hope that the George Floyd murder was one of those turning points. People, I think, are starting to realize, you know, dealing with homeless people, arresting them, you know, picking them up, there's other ways to do it. There, you're starting to see more housing being built. And some people are like, what? Giving them housing? Well, yeah. You know, and taking care of, of mental issues, there's other ways to do it other than calling in the police. And I think, you know, uh, Portland, Oregon is one of those places where it's starting to happen. And, you know, a little bit of history here. I know I keep going back to history. I What can I say? I love history. I was in Oregon only once in 1968 with Outward Bound in the gorgeous, beautiful Three Sisters Wilderness, which I hope is still pristine. It's fabulous. And that's that's my only image of this state. Apparently, that was very incomplete picture. You say, Oregon was founded as a white homeland, and Portland was a national home to organized racism for a long time. What? <laughs> Tell us about yeah, that, please. I mean, yeah. So, well, I mean, basically, when it's 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 it is 
somewhat complicated in terms of the whole white homeland thing, you know. But basically, Portland, uh, the, the state of Oregon uh, was basically all the all the. I mean, backing up a little bit, you know, broadly here, all the settlement of the West, all the states that were settled uh, in, in the course of the expansion of this very expansionistic uh, country, this empire, uh, as the U.S. was expanding, the un written uh i think it was unwritten certainly it was a it was a rule and it was very much practiced and i and i'm not sure if it was written but it, the basic the the rule was you couldn't even have a chance at becoming a state until you had a white settler majority and you know that was true everywhere mm -hmm. uh, but but in oregon uh it was um it, this was not only of course could oregon not apply for statehood until it had the requisite uh white settler uh, majority, but Oregon also went further and had the rule had laws around property ownership and uh, different jobs who could or couldn't work based on your uh, race, which was defined very specifically. It was, I think, one of the earlier efforts at defining whiteness, and uh, and there were also um, there were definitions of different kinds of Mexican because from ah. the very beginning the state of Oregon, uh, there have been uh, Mexicans, uh, you know, sure. Spanish-speaking people who identified as Mexican. And, um, the, and in the state constitution, they are divided into uh, a caste, uh, you know, system of white Mexicans and black Mexicans. And they have different rights depending Jeez. on whether the, they were determined to be white or black Mexicans. And uh, according and native uh, people, there were special. There was a special exemption uh, for native people. They were, if you were half native, you could own property. And that was uh, with if you had other racial mixes in mm -hmm. you, then you needed to have uh, less than half of the non-white uh, race in order to own property. But if you were native, then then you could be half native. But full native, no. Then you had no rights. So that was all in the uh, that was all in the state constitution, and there were uh, mm. there were also uh, it, people who disobeyed the rules and were uh, living and working in the state uh, who were not white. Were officially uh, the official punishment was for them to be publicly flogged every six months until they left. <laughs> But unofficially, there were there were signs around the towns, cities in Oregon uh, up until uh, in in within well within living memory of uh, some people that uh, that said basically you people who are not white should leave town by sunset or you'll be lynched. Yeah. Uh huh. Oh my goodness. And one of the things I've I've learned from history. Well, of course, the biggest thing to learn from history is that. People don't learn from history, but uh, the resistance to bringing slavery out to many Western states was actually because not so much they were against slavery. They just want, didn't want black people there. They didn't want black people there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was they didn't want black people here. That was the thing about not wanting slavery yeah. was not wanting black people. Yeah. But um, but to to just slightly in defense of of the of these uh, these sort of. Uh, 
what you would rightly call white supremacist uh, uh, settlers, they, the, the part of the thing with the isolationism in a way, the racial isolationism is also uh, not, not to have to compete with free labor on the assumption that there was something automatically always free about any black labor. Inevitably, you know, that blacks were inevitably, so this racist thinking in that blacks were inevitably going to be slaves because that's just their right. sort of natural. You know, but but this but this not wanting to have to deal with the whole institution. So so you know, part of that you know, to, for some people might have been you know, there might have been some aspect of something positive about this uh, not wanting slavery. You know, I mean, I doubt, I doubt there were any. I don't know how many people would have been you know, actual abolitionists. You know, because this this state was not settled primarily by abolitionists. It was settled by people who. Who you know they moved here and they and they started uh, naming towns uh, things like uh, Jacksonville mm. and Selma, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it uh, people think you know some people think ah that racist stuff was only in the South, huh? I wish, right? And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some people have painted the protests in Portland as not legitimate protests but as riots. What? How would you answer that? If if you hear people say that, how would you respond? I would say that the, the dynamic that people need to understand that's happening in Portland and other cities, most of the time when you're talking about what they call riots, and, and, and we may, maybe we can distinguish here between um, the first one or two or three nights after a police uh, execution, such as George Floyd, you know, uh, the, 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 the dynamics uh, for the first few days after something like that um, are different uh, and, uh, and, and, and maybe involve much more uh, targeted property destruction and, and perhaps, uh, you know, un, not targeted property destruction, depending on who's destroying the property, who's involved, who's coming from out of town, what kind of provocateurs are involved. Yeah. You know, it's all very complicated, big mess, and it's hard to say. But when you're talking about what they call riots in Portland most of the time, uh, to differentiate from, you know, the, the sort of torching of, of much of that neighborhood in, uh, you know, the, the, in, in the, what is it, Lakeside neighborhood in, in Minneapolis, for example, you know, that, so like what, what's been going on in Portland generally is much more along the lines of people march down the street after having a rally in a park with people speaking and stuff then they people march down in the, the streets and then that they're either for at some point allowed to march around um w without uh, being attacked uh, and then at some point uh unpredictably uh, maybe in minutes into the march or maybe hours into the march uh they will be assaulted by gangs of riot uh -huh. police uh, sometimes with notification and other times without notification and sometimes the police will attack people just for being on the sidewalk in the wrong area mm. and they will frequently attack medics uh, legal observers and journalists uh, mm. just as freely as they attack everybody else and they're constantly getting sued and they're constantly losing lawsuits and they just keep on doing it anyway yeah, because it's not in their budget. Enough. It's not in, this, in the police budget. This municipal taxpayers have to pick that up oftentimes. And in, in terms mm -hmm. of, of pictures that's been broadcast on TV of, of violence, you know, certainly there's, there's some, as you've described, you know, burning barricades, things like that, uh, and, and uh, 
you know, which makes for great media. Oh, makes for great media. Fires, yeah, we love it. But what yeah. about any sense? You're there in Portland. Of who's been doing more of the violent stuff, uh, uh, the right wing, or what is now called the left, which used to be kind of the center. But what, what's your sense of who's, you know, who's really initiating uh, disturbing violence? Any guess on that? Well, I mean. If you're talking about the center in terms of the left, if you're talking about the electoral left, I mean, there, there's, I wouldn't refer to them as left, but right, right. I mean, and with the left, when we're talking about people protesting, we're not talking about uh, Democrats. They're generally people who have uh, really, um, who are who are outraged by both parties. Yeah. You know, these are people who, who would, you know, generally be, I mean, you know, Occupy Wall Street happened when when there was a Democrat in the White House. You know, it's it's well known around mm-hmm. here that that the Democrats make more money than the Republicans on average. You know, and that that's a fact, by the way. Yeah. The Congress, uh, the average person in the Congress is four thousand dollars. The average Democrat in the Congress is four thousand dollars wealthier than the average Republican in terms of their net worth, and that's a fact. And that's just you know we have these mis conceptions about the two parties and their leadership and there may be a lot of truth to these misconceptions when we're talking about their base you know there's probably sure. more working class support in the democratic party but the leadership is is very much an elite and that and and, the, and that's very much true here in portland the democratic leadership uh you know the, as represented by the mayor and and the, he's reviled you know he's reviled so, so that's but it well, yeah. the violence so on the streets about- there, I, I, sorry to interrupt, but the violence on the streets there, some of it's coming from the police, some of it's coming from not police. Any, Who's doing more violence? Yeah, so the way I would break it down basically is the overwhelming majority. The, 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 the violence that's being committed against human beings is being committed, uh, and which is what many of us would define as violence, as opposed to violence against inanimate objects. But when we're talking about violence against human beings, um, that is o- almost entirely being committed by the police. Right. And to the extent that it's not police, it's right-wing thugs uh, attacking people. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, so, but and then, then it's there's also uh, some. Uh, degree of uh, people defending themselves against the right wing thugs when because when the police are totally absent because mm-hmm. the police are not there to to get in between people so people have to defend themselves and so that's that's what's been happening is when when it came down to the patriot prayer guy getting shot that was a question of people who uh, someone who is involved with uh, t- the role of playing security in the demos and this, the demos are very well organized and there's people who play mm. different roles there's little uh, it's a very well organized in the anarchist uh, sense of you know, where where p- people form affinity groups that have uh-huh. different uh, sort of responsibilities. They don't need to coordinate with each other. They don't need to have an overall director. They know what their role is and they, they do their fundraising and they get their equipment. So there's people who give away free food. There's other people who give away free medical care, other people who do free legal help, other people, you know, there's a, there's a whole network of different people doing different kinds of uh, things at, uh, at the protest to sort of keep things going, but the, there is also people doing uh, security, and uh, there are people on, oftentimes very large people on motorcycles, and uh, who are uh, wonderful allies of the movement. Who are, if you're going to attack anybody. If you're going to attack the crowd with a vehicle, you're going to drive through uh, some very big people on very yeah. large motorcycles. Basically, <laughs> that is the that is the arrangement, you know, much of the time. But uh, so the the person when the 
Patriot Prayer guy got shot, that was mm-hmm. a case of uh, basically somebody doing security who what felt uh, that people's lives were being threatened and made that probably very uh, hasty decision to uh, mm-hmm. use the loaded gun that he had on him, which is not uncommon these days because the right-wingers are coming in with loaded guns. And oh, yeah. so there are elements uh, among the you know, among the protesters as well who also uh, you know, are not pacifists by any means and, right. and also right. are carrying guns. But the violence against people is overwhelmingly police. And when we're, but we're, when we're talking about property, if we're talking about people who want to um, occupy uh, the police stations, which is a regular thing that keeps on happening here in different neighborhoods where people organize what the Youth Liberation Front calls a direct action march, which means they're going to march down the street and then they're going to basically do stuff around the police station and different people will do different uh-huh. things. Uh, uh-huh, sure. Mostly they'll just get attacked by the police, <laughs> but, uh, you know, sounds like a good time. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but then some people may also try to set barricades alight and, sure. uh, you know, basically break windows in the police station and, uh, you know, get into the police station with the, I think the ultimate goal is to turn it into an occupied uh, sort of autonomous zone, like the shop in Seattle. It just never gets to that point here because there's never enough numbers and the police are always too violent. And so it just, uh, you know, turns into these constant nightly skirmishes outside of police stations uh, in different parts of the city. But the violence is, is, is all the yeah. police, and you know, unless yeah, you call a, a burning dumpster violent. You know. Well, what about, we've heard about the Wall of Moms. Tell us about that and how the police and federal forces dealt with them. When um, when the federal forces were here, um, I mean they are still here, right? But when the federal forces were uh, were in the forefront uh, of of um, uh, of attacking uh, people, and you know to the point where the local police largely like sort of took took nights off from attacking people downtown because the federal forces were doing it so. Uh, with such wanton brutality that even the local police who are very well known for wanton brutality uh, just were like, okay, if they're not going to coordinate with us, we'll just, you know, sit this out, you know, basically. But uh, when the federal forces were here snatching people off the street and, uh, and and attacking people with lasers and all sorts of, you know, space age weapons, I mean, there's a really bizarre stuff going on. I mean, this was like, you know, I mean, it was, it was like beyond the normal realm of police and uh, sort of going into the sort of dirty war type of uh, scenario, you know, except they weren't actually torturing and killing people. They were, you know, abducting them and holding them in for a few hours and interrogating them, then letting hmm. them go. So it's sort of like practice run for, for disappearances, you know. But uh, it was it was scared. It scared a lot of people to the point where it got them mobilized in in the streets and, uh, you know, in their thousands every night. And that included um, the group that was calling itself the Wall of Moms. And and that was largely suburban uh, moms who organized as as a group and uh, and were uh, so a lot of different groups. um, Sure. I love started coming out basically because they were like, I think they, they, I think that some of them probably had uh, unrealistic ideas uh, about uh, mm. inserting themselves between the, the mostly, you know, teenagers and folks in their twenties who are getting constantly attacked by the police every night 
and sort of like, uh, you know, and who are also include, you know, relatively large numbers of people of color. And they, uh, you know, a lot of these groups, largely from the suburbs, wanted to get involved and, and say like, oh, we're here. Okay, if you're going to attack somebody, attack people your own age, uh, you know, who live in the same suburbs as you do, you know, which I think was powerfully symbolic and made a lot of uh, media. And then what mm -hmm. made it even more, made it even more media was that the fact that the police just, uh, you know, the federal forces, uh, just attacked them and they attacked the mayor. You know, I, I mean, he, th when the mayor came uh, to the federal building, they attacked him too. Oh, I mean, right. they, wow. you know, <laughs> uh, and he is uh, an elitist, tear gas loving <laughs> mayor, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> they attacked him. You know, they made it look good, which would piss the rest of us off because he's tear gas Ted and he shouldn't be <laughs> made to look good, <laughs> but he did. He looked good for that night. <laughs> Well, that's one he was thing coughing. that, oh my goodness, you, you got to be smart about that. You know, you have to, it, it's good to be strategic and figure things out. Not everybody does that for sure. You know, people just react understandably and don't always think through, but that's, I, I love the affinity groups thing. That's, that's, I have an affinity for affinity groups from way back from a long time <laughs> yeah. ago. Now, if people yeah. understand what fascism is, which many do not Nearly everyone would be against fascism. Again, once they understand what it is, some on the left see a well-organized fascist fighting machine. You talked in your article, you mentioned you talked with uh, University of Massachusetts professor Graciela uh, Montegudo, I hope I pronounced that right, mm -hmm. who said yeah. the, the fascist comparisons aren't so relevant. Now, from what you've seen in Portland, how competent and well-oiled is the fascistic side? Well, I mean, yeah, I think the, the the point that she was making is that, I mean, and I've, I've since talking to her, I've, I've been asking other people that question, like, but Asiela said this, what do you think? And I've gotten interesting, different responses from other people, like Arun Gupta, who was saying that, uh, that well, it doesn't, it's not a, the point about fascism isn't that the, uh, the fascists are so competent at being mm -hmm. fascist, mm -hmm. that they're fascist. And so, you know, I don't think uh, Graciela would disagree uh, that they're fascists necessarily, but that, but the point she's making is that they're really incompetent fascists, and, I, and they, which is a, you know, a relevant point to make. And I've, sure. I've often <laughs> made this, I mean, when you think about what they accomplished in, in Germany, and, that, and, and Germany wasn't... Um, there's been a lot of fascist regimes oh, in, yeah. in history of the world, and they've varied wildly from really kleptocratic and relatively incompetent ones, right. uh, which uh, to to a to no small extent, you know, maybe you could say includes uh, Mussolini's Italy, but certainly includes a lot of uh, Latin American uh, dictatorships. Oh, yeah. And then there have been others, which which with Germany uh, being the you know top. Uh, example yeah. uh, during the World War II of being really well organized and and really um, you know uh, really not corrupt and and, and really uh, and, and really popular among much of the population at at, at first you know uh, so that that was um, the German model is is clearly the one that a lot of real right. fascists would like to emulate right. but it's not what they're <laughs> it's not what they actually do <laughs> well let's hear it for the incompetence that may be their <laughs> our saving grace. Uh, yeah, your last, I hope so. Oh, my goodness. Your last paragraph in the article uh, starts out this way. Either way, if there's a point at which we realize we are taking our lives in our hands by just going downtown and marching in the streets, this might be it. Please say more of what you mean there. That's big. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I think that like we're getting to the question of Northern Ireland that we touched on before, that like at the point when the, when the Irish uh, civil rights movement was going on um, in the late 60s and uh, Catholics uh, were marching for their rights in a society that was uh, really uh, a caste society oh, where yeah. Catholics were totally oppressed and Protestants got all the good jobs and, um, yeah. and, and all the cops were Protestant and et cetera, et cetera. You know, it was, a, it was a, it was a, you know, a racialized, uh, society oh, yeah. and, uh, between Protestant and Catholic. And when the Catholic, at first the, the Catholics, uh, the, the, the civil rights movement was very consciously modeled after the civil rights movement in the United States and led by clergy and people were marching peacefully in the streets and just like in the United States, they were violently attacked by uh, racist Protestants and violently attacked by uh, by police, and uh, that uh, and and ultimately, and it, it, just like in the United States, uh, sort of the, their equivalent of like federal troops were brought in, you know, which in the form of the British uh, troops, but they weren't, uh, you know, they were very partisan themselves, right. and ultimately, uh, you had a situation where. Uh, basically, uh, Catholics trying to march peacefully in mm -hmm. the streets uh, were were being massacred, and sure. and of course, you know, it, you had Bloody Sunday is, is well known, where thirteen uh, leaders, uh, organizers, not just random thirteen people, but thirteen organizers of the march uh, were sought out by the British military and executed uh, in broad daylight. That's, you know, that's Bloody Sunday. But prior to Bloody Sunday, uh, there were in cities across the country uh, inspired by fake news put out by the British uh, government uh, about uh, non-existent terrorist activities uh -huh. and all sorts of things. They whipped up a, a, an atmosphere, which wasn't that hard to whip up in the first place because of mm. the caste society that already existed. But they whipped up an atmosphere such that, you know, Protestant mobs uh, were, were burning down Catholic houses in, in, uh, in, in cities throughout Northern Ireland. Uh, and it was pogroms. Uh, there were thousands of refugees. There were hundreds of buildings burned. This was the atmosphere that, um, you know, led... The formation of the armed resistance movement sure. and led to people there realizing that peaceful protest was not working and was not going to work mm. because if you were just going to get shot down, you know. So I mean, we're not in that. No. We haven't pogroms, you know. But what we are having is regularly uh, right-wing fanatics driving vehicles into crowds of people and causing serious injuries and occasionally death. And what we are having is right-wing fanatics with automatic weapons shooting people regularly at protests. So, you know, now that's, uh, you know, it's a different situation. But it's, it's perhaps kind of early. And here in New Hampshire, we have 400 members of the House. Some of them are really out there. And this one guy recently said, if you see a house with a Black Lives Matter sign, you can go in and burn it down. I'm serious. This, I mean, he's going to be taken wow. out. Well, you are also, aside from a uh, political activist, a musician, songwriter. How can people hear your songs? We're going to play one at the end, but how can people go to the internet thingy and uh, find your music? Oh, yeah, as long as they can uh, spell my name, or even if they misspell it, they'll come uh, across my music. That's all they need to do. DavidRovix.com, or you know, they can look me up on Spotify or wherever. Well, I'm on all the usual platforms. 
Great. Well, thank Easy you so much it. for being with us. And it's good to hear about what's going on there. And I, I sense a little bit of optimism in you as well as in me. That me- Two months now since that cop took a knee Like a knee upon the neck of a whole society Folks rose up all over, starting there in the Midwest The National Guard came in upon the governor's request Whenever people took the streets, riot cops attacked Shooting folks there in their faces and their backs Flooding streets with tear gas See how the people stand With masks upon their faces And leaf blowers in their hands There have been drive-by shootings And weaponizing trucks That the death counts what it is so far Is partly up to luck And partly up to barricades Used to block the way So folks might live to fight another day is if they're not killed by agents of the state like the ones who came to portland to make america great to face a rainbow nation that says screw your white homeland with masks upon their faces and leaf blowers in their hands as they kidnap people off the streets here in the global north as the tear gas billows the poison belches forth as those who would be dictators make their power play as people from all over town face them down and say we don't want police a better world can be built perhaps it starts with someone's hand upon the hilt making tornadoes out of tear gas maybe not what mama planned with masks upon their faces and leaf blowers in their hands. 